You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, before we get started, let me get in a plug here right off the top for our Patreon page, another one. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going strong and keep remaining as ad-free as possible, then I would ask you to please consider becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com slash island and sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And that chat really is just so much fun. Uh, come and join us, really. Uh, again, folks, go to patreon.com slash island to sign up, support the show. Remember, it's only five bucks a month. You can cancel anytime. And I want to thank our new patron, Billy, for joining this week. Thank you so, so much, Billy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the Diggin' Oak Island family. Your support really does mean so much to me. Um, I can't thank you enough. And also, if you prefer not to do the monthly thing, but you want to help out, I get that. Uh, you can make a one-time donation via Venmo. Uh, you can use my username at Dave McBride Music. Uh, I, I am a musician. That's what I do for a living. And uh, that was sort of my virtual tip jar that we used to use back in the uh, pandemic days. And we still use them a little bit now again. And I want to make sure I thank Steve for his incredible donation this week. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you guys so, so much for all of this. You allowed me to upgrade the the, the equipment to keep the podcast going and all that kind of stuff and and just to be able to take the time to do these things that we're doing and we got a great episode today but I want to tell you guys all of this with all that being said uh, I am actually have to go away and be uh to go see family out west next week so I there will not be a podcast for episode 12 I just I'm not going to be able to get it in by the end of the week uh, so what we're going to need to do is put two shows together for episode 12 and 13 you can still get your emails in for all that kind of stuff um be just as normal and if for some reason i can get it in maybe get it in on the weekend or something like that i will uh, but we may end up doing no podcast next week and two and two shows in one podcast the week after uh, just so you guys know okay as always let's start today's podcast with emails and messages from you, the listeners, and we only have a couple this week. So let's begin with an email from Frank, who helps clarify something from last week's episode for us. He writes, Dave, love your pod. Keep up the good work. Here is a response uh, Here is a response Gary Drayton gave on Facebook to someone that asked a question about detecting pottery in this week's episode. He wrote, you cannot detect pottery with a metal detector. It's called editing. We only found pottery while digging the metal targets. The reason we stood down and called in Laird, the archaeologist, is because of that. I don't watch the show, but I heard about it. Perhaps they didn't show the many pieces of metal dug out of the hole before we started pulling up pottery shards. Frank, uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, it really was a weird bit of editing, especially when you consider what, um, what uh, Gary's saying there. Uh, and I would love to know what those, quote, many pieces of metal dug out of the hole before we started pulling up pottery was, right? I mean, remember, the archaeologist Helen said that she was not pulling out anything modern with this pottery. So I can only presume 
that these pieces of metal were in fact very old and might help us pinpoint a little bit the dating and maybe even the origin or the purpose behind whatever this buried rock thing is under that tree. But for whatever reason, we get no information about that at all. It's completely knocked out. Um, And I know here that Gary is helping out a fan of the show. And kudos to him for answering that question. That's great stuff. Um, But I can also see how this response could serve to aggravate some people, right? Because look what he's saying there. You know, we pulled out other artifacts that led us to this pottery and we didn't show you those. That can be aggravating for some people. I'm kind of used to it by now, um, but I understand why people do get uh, frustrated with it. And now we have another email from our friend and Patreon, Steve, who writes, uh, now this is interesting, published by Fred Nolan in 1974. And he included with his email a photo of a map Fred made, uh, which I will put on the Facebook page for you guys to have a look. Apparently, you can purchase a copy of it on eBay if you were so inclined. It's a fascinating look into what Fred Nolan was thinking and what he knew. Now, first, if you look at this, um, the thing is a little disorienting as it looks at Oak Island from the east. So it's kind of up on its head, right? Um, There is listed, quote, Old Cofferdam from 1867 in Smith's Cove that looks a lot like the U-shaped structure. He lists something south of the money pit along the beach, which he calls second cave-in part pit found in 18 uh, 1965. So there was a second cave-in pit along the it was the southern coast there. Um, and then he also writes one of the coolest ones is he writes, quote, old wagon roads previous to Graves Farm pirate roads, end quote which is just east of the swamp. So he was aware of roads there for sure. And also he writes uh, old pirate stone piles, which he points out just north of the money pit. Take a look, folks. It's a really cool piece of Oak Island history for sure. And Steve also said, oh, and the Fred Nolan book, as mentioned on the show, appears to be the story of Oak Island. It was originally published in 1896 and Fred had it reprinted in 1967 to sell in his museum, the one on the mainland end of the causeway. He also included a a photo of that book, too, which I will post for you guys to see. Now, I'm not sure, Steve, that you're right, because I thought Fred said or Tom Nolan said that his father had written a book. I thought that was the phraseology he used. But uh, so maybe he did have this reprinted to sell. But um, I thought he was referring to something that Fred had written on his own, something that might inform the um, the possible damning structure that they have been looking for. Now, for those who might not know this little piece of Oak Island history, Fred opened an Oak Island museum on the mainland right by the causeway and filled it with the things he found. Some are mentioned on this map here, actually, uh, including what he calls, quote, large sandstone rock with strange markings found many years ago, which he then says it was relocated to his museum in 1973. Remember, this is an era when um, Fred Nolan and Dan Blankenship were feuding pretty hard and often trying to one-up each other and kick each other out of properties and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there there was a lot going on in this era between these two men uh, and a lot of stuff that Fred was doing, like this museum, to try to get in on the Oak Island trade, so to speak. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but you know where I'm getting. And I assume, Steve, that this book here is no longer in print. Um, if so, I wonder why not. 
but I, I will look it up. I haven't. I wish I did before I started recording the podcast. Okay, let's finish up this part with a message on Facebook. Remember last week, our listener Mike came up with possible evidence for a theory he's looking into about Oak Island being a location for the British Navy to salt cod. He presented us with an amazing map he found, which I posted on the Facebook page. This week, Mike follows up with another message that says, It appears that the British and Scots were definitely in the area along the Atlantic coast and that they did most of their fishing from small land-based boats and processed the fish on shore. Also, it says the British lacked salt in adequate quantities. I wonder if they were looking for salt on Oak Island. Interesting, but nothing conclusive. In pre-colonial times, the existence of salt springs and brine pools in various parts of the province was known to the Mi'kmaq. Maybe the stone road was used to haul salt to the shore and to the Native American pottery was used to keep it dry. I'll keep digging. Mike then quotes a website that's seasalt.com, which offers up kind of a history of salt. And it says, quote, salt has played a prominent role in the European exploration of North America and subsequent American history, Canadian history and Mexican history as well. The first Native Americans discovered by Europeans in the Caribbean were harvesting sea salt on St. Martin. When the major European fishing fleets discovered the Grand Banks of Newfoundland at the end of the 15th century, the Portuguese and Spanish fleets used the wet method of salting their fish on board, while the French and English used the dry or shore salting method of drying their catch on rocks uh, on racks on shore. Due to this early food processing, French and British fishermen became the first European inhabitants of North America since the Vikings a half century earlier. Had it not been for the practice of salting fish, Europeans might have confined their fishing to the coasts of Europe and delayed discovery of the New World. Okay, let me just stop here for a second. Mike has more to say, but I just wanted to make a quick comment. Yes, indeed, European fishermen came to the island uh, on uh, many islands on the Atlantic coast and mainland for years before the the continent was quote unquote settled. Uh, All up and down the northeastern coast of North America, there are islands that were temporary homes for fishing operations, and those homes disappeared over the years and oftentimes lost to history. There is an island in the Gulf of Maine just off of Booth Bay Harbor, which I always go to. That's kind of my second home, uh, called Damerscove Island. Way back at the start of the 1600s, it was a site for what we can now call, I guess, a commercial fishing operation that did Just what you're talking about here, Mike. But like all such operations, it was designed to be seasonal. It was temporary, and it was eventually abandoned. All right. Mike then concludes by saying, For a while, salt was one of the commodities that European settlers had to acquire from Indian traders. Shipments from elsewhere were few and unreliable. Hunters and trappers periodically made small amounts of salt for their own use at brine seeps and they that they encountered during their travels. Could the eye of the swamp be a brine seep? Uh, the swamp, a salt pond. Mike, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again here. I think you might be onto something a little bit. Um, keep this research coming. Keep looking into this. I think we're required by the charter of this podcast to find the truth behind the Oak Island mystery, uh, to look beyond treasure stories and and at other possibilities. And this is without doubt a possibility. And we discussed that a little bit last week, and I love what you're doing here. Great, great stuff. I think even this episode and some of the things we're going to say later on might even push you or motivate you to look into it even a little deeper. That's all for the emails this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me, 
diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, let's do it. It is time to discuss Season 10, Episode 11 of The Curse of Oak Island called Oh Well. (laughs) Let's begin quickly at the Money Pit, where we see a new borehole being drilled, this one called CN11. And it's 27 feet west of the garden shaft in an area that we've uh, designated as the blob. Uh, It's um, If you don't remember, this is the spot where Dr. Spooner and Dr. Lukeman um, were saying that might be the source of gold and silver in the water samples that they've been finding underground. This is where that source might be located. Just a little side thought here. This scene, if you watched it, and the one thing I thought of as I'm watching it was that it was so full of clips and flashbacks to what happened last week, I started to wonder, maybe the show could consider doing a previously on segment, like you see in a lot of dramatic shows, um, you know, something at the top of each episode that they can give us this kind of information if they feel we need it, and then we could stop seeing so much of this recapping put into the new information. Anyway, just a thought. Um, So... Not much happened actually here at the Money Pit this week, so we can get through this really quickly. Um, Later in the episode, the drilling reaches down to a depth of 108 feet, which is right around their target area. There is no wood found or anything like that, but Terry Matheson points out a little patch of packed-in sand that he says indicates human action nearby, in quotes. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem like much to me just looking at it, but Terry would certainly know better than I would. Uh, Later on, Alex and... um, Paul are taking a water sample. Alex Lagina uh, was taking a water sample with Paul Troutman, uh, which presumably we will hear more about in a future episode. Anyway, that's really it for the money pit. So let's head over to lot five. This is where archaeologists Laird, Niven, Miriam Emerald, um, and Helen Sheldon were digging a new site under a tree close to the beach. Uh, in the first scene we get here, Jack Begley has seemingly taken over the sifting of the spoils from Laird, which he was doing last week while Miriam and Helen continue to do the digging. Helen points out how some of the rocks they are working around here seem to be very well packed together, making her think it was built to be either a wall or, or something like that. Um, later in the show, we see Miriam and Helen still digging, and Miriam remarks that they are still quote, still finding ceramics, pieces of iron, and glass, end quote. But get especially excited when she pulls out an old um, clay pipe stem. Helen and Miriam agree this is a great find because it can be easily and pretty definitively dated by examining the way it's made, the size of the hole, I guess, that the smoke comes through um, will be the telling factor here if I'm understanding them correctly. There's a lot of interesting talk about how a clay pipe stem is something everyone has been looking for on Oak Island, yet they have found precious few of, if any, over the years doing all of this. Um, Apparently, they were so common in their day and so easily broken and discarded that that not finding any on Oak Island is in itself very strange. So Eric on the Patreon during this scene, uh, during the live discussion, had a great comment about this when he said, doesn't the lack of clay pipes on the stone road indicate that maybe the road would be older than the feature currently being dug? If pipes were so fragile and they were so commonly thrown away, then why were there not why were they not in the stone road unless they were not available for use or in use at the time of construction? Maybe I missed something in their explanation. 
Uh, no, Eric, I don't think you missed anything. Uh, I think that's part of what Miriam is saying about how it's so weird they didn't find anything over there. I'm sure things like this were discussed and here too, right? But we just didn't get to hear anything about it. You're totally correct. There, there seems to be some kind of reason possibly that the Stone Road would not contain what we're being led to believe is sort of the normal kinds of things archaeologists would expect to find when doing their work in Nova Scotia. Now, I suppose we're not going to know anything about that until they're able to go back um, into the project of the Stone Road and find out what it might be, <laughs> right? And why that might be. We're kind of didn't come up with anything. And I, I really find it cool that Miriam says there that, uh, you know, that it, is, it still fascinates them that, uh, that they haven't found these kind of things. Anyway, before we finish up lot five, uh, I love what Helen says here about this site. She says, quote, this is the oldest European deposit we have found on the island. Interesting phrase. And mentions it seems certainly pre-1795, meaning before the money pit was discovered. Uh, it's fascinating stuff for sure. Can't wait to hear if we actually come to some agreement with the archaeologists of what this might be and what it was used for. Now, before we take a quick break here, let's head over to Lot 26. We see a war room meeting where the team is discussing a feature on Lot 26 I have not thought about myself in some time, though I have heard about this. Uh, this is, just didn't come to mind here. Rick tells a story about he, uh, him and Dan Blankenship walking along the beach in the dead of winter in the freezing cold with snow and ice on the ground when they discover this little tiny little pond of water that for some reason was not itself frozen. They came to find it was crudely built, uh, that it was crudely built well, and just not being frozen over when everything else around it was strange enough for them to make um, whatever this is interesting. Elizabeth on the Patreon when they're showing this writes, isn't that, is that a, an odd place for a well? That's a great question. And uh, Elizabeth, I'm not an expert on that, but it did, I gotta tell you, it did certainly seem strange to me. It was right on top of this kind of yucky looking pond and only a few feet from the beach. Um, now, as I often say, I, again, don't trust me. I'm not an expert on, on this, but it's just let's leave it at that because it just did seem a little strange. The guys decide to investigate it some more. And I couldn't help but wonder why this project or this discovery is only coming up now as they're talking about this. And had they really never investigated it before? They really just forgot about it. It just seems very strange. Anyway. There's a lot of talk about Captain James Anderson and Samuel Ball, both who owned this lot at one point or another in the history of Oak Island, and both are people that the show likes to say are somehow mysterious, even though there isn't really much evidence to suggest a whole lot of mystery around either one of them, if I'm honest. Uh, I also can't see how this well could be connected to both of those people in some clandestine way. It must be one or the other, but be that as it may, the feature alone is certainly somewhat, again, somewhat out of the ordinary to me. Dr. Spooner apparently tested the water here in this well, and he says the water tested uh, and came the water was tested and came up with silver traces in it. And he says that it is, quote, one of the only silver hits outside of the money pit to to which Steve on the Patreon immediately chimed in with one of the only. <laughs> Where are the others? He asks. That's a great question, Steve. And, and my wife. Um, who made through about half of this episode, a, a recent record for her, asked me, why wouldn't they have tested or looked at this earlier? These are all good questions. Again, it's the first thing that came to my mind. But I can't understand 
what this is. And so I think it's strange. And I find it also strange that it has been ignored for what must be over a decade, right? I think that alone is strange. So there's something afoot here, right? I don't really know what it is, but we're going to get a, it's going to be even stranger in just a second. Later, Dr. Spooner and Laird Niven head down to this Lot 26 to check this well out, with Dr. Spooner on a mission to look for some organic material in it that he can date and hopefully, um, you know, is part of the construction of it. They comment, the two of them comment both about how crudely it was made, um, and Laird even remarks that he would like to know, quote, what brought them to dig right here? Did they have some inherent knowledge? Question mark. So that leads, that's an interesting little nugget from Laird for all of us to ponder. Um, first of all, who is the who he might be? But let me go back to that question that we were talking about with Elizabeth. Isn't this strange? It seems like Laird thinks it's a strange spot for a well, too. And they must have known that there was some sort of fresh water deposit here, or else why would they have looked so close to the beach? That's what I get out of that. Uh, maybe I'm looking too much into it, but that's what I get out of it. Anyway. I know I'm all over the place with this, but this is a fascinating little thing. Uh, anyway, later they meet up in the war room, and Dr. Spooner says he took a piece of wood um, that was out of the bottom of the well that he thinks is then kind of predates the construction of the well or is part of the construction of the well, and it dated it to 1028 to 1172. And after hearing this, I get immediately the opposite reaction from the guys because my thought was that we can probably just throw this out because it's obviously something that's either natural, not very well taken care of over the years. Um, maybe this wood really wasn't part of the construction. Um, maybe it's possibly First Nations in origin. I don't know. I guess what I would say is that I would love to understand a little bit better of what they're looking at here and exactly why they think this is for sure a well and why they're so certain it was, quote unquote, built by someone, they seem to be pretty certain of that. Because, But I'm not convinced from what I saw. So I guess I kind of want to see it just a little bit more. Um, now, having said all of that, after this, I reached out to Laird Niven because this one stuck in my head a little bit. And I asked him if he can offer any clarification. And all he said was, not much <laughs> other than the Mi'kmaq would not construct something like this. And I wrote back you know, a thank you and said, wow, this really is strange. And he kind of agreed with that. He wrote, yes, it is strange indeed. You know, So this is a weird find for sure. Uh, it's weird for a lot of reasons that it's there and that it's never been examined before. And if the dating is accurate, it's even weirder. But let me also add, just because the wood Dr. Spooner found was from the 12th century doesn't prove that this was indeed built by the Knights Templar. But I don't think I needed to tell you that. So to finish up today, we're actually going to leave Oak Island, drive 50 miles southwest to a town called Liverpool, Nova Scotia. And this time, it's Rick Lagina, Charles Barkhouse, traveling along with our friend Corey and Maul. The three guys are there to meet uh, with locals Isaac Refuse and Nick Fralick, who own some beachfront property that has a few fascinating features to it, namely rocks with strange carvings. So they all head out to these, this really gorgeous piece of scenery here, this beautiful rocky coast where they are shown these symbols. Now, one symbol looks like an arrow with a center stripe leading from the tip. It's kind of like a three-pronged arrow. The landowners mentioned that they were told that the symbol could be something called a broadhead. 
It's an old British symbol, which was apparently used to mark things being claimed for their use. This is hard to explain, so go back and watch this uh, part of the episode if you didn't already. Uh, They explain it better than I can here. They go through it pretty well, but in the long run, listen, I'm totally clueless on these things. I'm not, I don't know the history of these symbols. Thankfully, Corey and Maul is not at all totally clueless. Uh, In fact, he's got a lot to say. He says he doesn't think this is indeed a broadhead, but instead what he calls a goose paw, which is apparently used as um, like a maker's mark by the Masons uh, that were employed by the Knights Templar. It's pretty interesting. Uh, The guys walk down the beach to see yet another rock with multiple symbols on it, which look like a cross. And then there's like this half circle thing with a dot in there and a couple of others. It's best to go and take a look here. Corian po- points out the one of the, one of these symbols uh, is actually a cross on top of a circle. And this is called a globus cruciger. Now, this is something I know a little bit about. Certainly not completely clueless on this. It is, the glo- globus cruciger, which is hard to say, is usually dedicated um, or depicted, I should say, as an actual spherical object, something you can hold in your hands, right? And then the cross is on the top of it. I'm sure you've seen these. It's a very old symbol, and I mean like 5th century old. It has it has meant a lot of things over a lot of years, but has come basically to symbolize sort of the world being ruled over by God. Um, or, you know, I think to some degree also by whoever's holding the sphere, like if it's something that uh, a monarch would be pictured with or something like that. Um Corian points out how these symbols, these ones in this other rock, again, were used by the Knights Templar. So here's what I did. Since I know nothing about this kind of symbology, I actually reached out to Corian Mall after the episode aired to see if he could give us any kind of addition, add anything to the discussion. Because as you know, these scenes and these explanations often get really cut down and a lot of them removed before we ever get to see anything. Here's what he had to say. Hey, Dave. Some background on the Liverpool carvings. The triangular carving sits on what the locals call the wharf stone. It's a broad, flat rock formation, which acts as a bulkhead for the natural harbor behind it. It reminded me of a story by Samuel D. Champlain. In 1607, while in Acadia, he met a captain from the Basque country named Savalette. He mentioned to Champlain that he had been fishing in Acadian waters every year for 42 years. That means Basque fishermen had been around since at least 1565. The Basque are people from northern Spain. They fished for cod and they had a special way of preserving their catch. They would dry their fish on the rocks before returning to Europe. The wharf rock looks ideally suited to dry fish. A certain group among the Basque people use the goose paw as their identity mark, their logo, like you see it there in Liverpool. They were known as the Cago or Cago. Uh, They lived around the Navarre area in northern Spain and southern France from around the year 1000. A Cago legend relates how Hiram of Tyre, architect builder of Solomon's Temple, used a master mason from northern Spain called Rabbi Joaquin or Jacum or something like that. I think it's Joaquin. Uh, he had the he had to forge the bronze pillar to the temple, but got distracted when a woman walked by. As a result, there was a flaw in one of the pillars, and Hiram cursed him for it. Joaquin married the woman he had seen, and their offspring became the cursed minority people that we now know as the Cago. The Cago were known for their skilled stone masons, who were involved in the building of many Gothic cathedrals in the Middle Ages a number of which were financed and or initiated by the Knights Templar. 
they used the goose paw to mark their presence, inscribed in stone. The most famous example of a goose paw is on the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. The Cagos goose paw marks, identifiable by the little heel at the top of the triangle, can be found in churches and cathedrals all over the Mediterranean area, especially in northern Portugal, Spain, Italy, southern France, and with some of them as far away as England. I don't think the carving on the wharf stone in Liverpool is a British broad arrow. They look quite different. It looks more like the Basque fishermen dried their fish on the flat surface of the wharf stone and left their mark on the rock while waiting for maybe or maybe to mark the spot for other fishermen. The second set of carvings add to the intrigue. They don't look like functional or logistical symbols or like someone's identity mark. Uh, They are a set of four symbols that seem of an esoteric or religious nature. They appear to belong belong together as a group. They also look much older than the goose paw, and they are more weathered. To me, they have a distinct medieval feel to them. The globus cruciger, the circle with the cross on top of it, was quite commonly used in European art as a mason's mark, like we saw in the Fonte Carta, Arcada, sorry, uh, in Portugal last year. However, the other three symbols aren't so common, especially the last symbol reminds me, uh, reminds me of the kinds of carvings the Templars left on walls of their properties and prisons in various places in Europe. It has a typical circle with a square cross inside of it and uh, that we see in different places here, symbolizing the order, the circle is the O, of the temple, the square cross representing the T. Considering everything, I think we're looking at a place that was known early as a natural harbor, which might have been used by Europeans from the Mediterranean area, possibly Kegos. And if we speculate a bit, who knows, the people that had uh, used their building services. <laughs> oh, and please add somewhere that, this, uh, that for this, we worked together with Terry DeVoe, who put us on the trail here. Terry DeVoe, we've seen as uh, you know, a historian there. He's been on the show a bunch of times. Uh, thank you, Corian, for helping us all out. Um, again, what great stuff. We can conclude from what when we see scenes like this that um, – there is a lot of good information that is left on the cutting room floor, right? We can definitely say that because uh, Corian really adds to that to this here. Um, it leads me to wonder if anyone has tried to date these carvings, right? Um, I know that some geologists are actually able to get a date from uh, or a dating idea from the amount of erosion. And those sorts of things done in these rocks. I, I wonder if that's something like that has ever been done before or will ever be done to these. I mean, who knows? Maybe the location of the you know, you know the water here makes something like that near impossible. I have no idea. But I know that sometimes these things can be dated. Might be worth looking into. Corian comes off really um, you know, knowledgeable in everything he does. And as you can see this from, from what he wrote to us, he truly is... Um, you know, this seems like a great little piece of history here that we're on to. I'm not sure how it relates to a treasure in in Oak Island, or on Oak Island, but uh, certainly the history is there, and it's really kind of cool. Now, I just want to add another perspective on all this. Uh, I mentioned our brand new Patreon, Billy. And again, thank you, Billy, for your support. Uh, he left me a message right after the show added, and he said this. So about these symbols, I got to say, Corey and Maul's speculation seems pretty much applying a Templar template, say that three times fast, to the stuff that could have a variety of meanings. Let me stop here. Uh, Billy, yes, I think in the show it was brought that way, but you can see from what he's saying here that it... I don't think he necessarily believes that. You know, he's pointing towards these Basque fishermen 
um, and what relation that might have. So again, a lot of times the full story isn't given to us. Anyway, Billy continues. For example, they could be alchemical symbols used as shorthand in a mining operation. And then he gives some examples like the the goose paw thing for dissolve or sometimes meaning water. The circle with this line in it is used for salt. And he has a few others as well. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, other things that he writes, other different kind of things. But then he concludes with what those would be doing on a rock in Nova Scotia. I have no clue, but it's at least as likely as a Templar quarry with some religious doodles. <laughs> uh, also, I just happened to be flipping through John Bell's Oak Island Illustrated for the first time. And on page 89, it has a picture of a Mi'kmaq prayer book using the hieroglyphic system a French missionary apparently adopted from Mi'kmaq precedents. And it has exactly the three-pronged goose paw symbol in it. And another one that looks a bit like the wavy horizontal sign they didn't spend much time on. I haven't found much in the way of a complete online research for their hieroglyphs, but at least one site arguing that they're somehow modified Egyptian brought by the Phoenicians or something or something claims that they're Mi'kmaq glyphs that look like this and, and all these kind of things, a vertical stroke and this means holy and that kind of stuff. He, he gives a bunch of examples here and a lot of them are visual, so that's why I'm kind of skipping over a little bit of what he's saying. Um, just take my word for this one. He sent us a picture picture of the prayer book, uh, but I have the book myself. So, um, you know, I'll show this to you on the Facebook page. And then he concludes, I have no idea if Mi'kmaq incised writing into stone, but if they did, I'd think they are far more likely the suspects than the Templars. Okay. I'm sorry I butchered that up, but right out of the gates there, Billy, what a fantastic job. What a great job spotting some of these things and sending this stuff along. Your spot of that Mi'kmaq prayer book and John Bell's book is just fantastic. Now, we interviewed here on the show Mr. Bell some months ago, and I do have his book sitting here right in front of me, and uh, there it is, right? Again, I'll do my best to take a good photo of it and post that image that Billy is referencing here uh, on the Facebook page. At least as far as the goose paw is concerned, um, you know, I think you got something. I think both you and Corian do, you know, that this could be related to fishermen who we've already talked about have been coming here for ages and ages and didn't leave a permanent kind of settlement behind. Or it could be this that you're saying here, something the Mi'kmaq were doing or somebody who had a relation to the Mi'kmaq and was using this symbol for whatever it might mean. Um, you know, what I love in your sentence here, Billy, is when you say, what those would be doing on a rock in Nova Scotia, I have no clue, but it's at least as likely as Templar. And I think that's the kind of attitude anyone trying to solve a mystery needs to have. And I think that's what we all have, right? Billy, your theories could be wrong. Who knows? Corian Malls doesn't even seem to have, you know, I don't think he's stuck on a theory at all, but his idea is that these things could, could be wrong. Who knows? We don't know. But they're all very good leads, and those leads need to be followed up before discarded. Until someone does that, the idea that it could be Templar should be considered only one of many possible explanations. Billy, I got to tell you, man, you're now on the staff here, the research staff here at the podcast. So keep this kind of stuff coming. <laughs> now, before we go, I just want to say this. What a great episode this was. I mean, this has been one of my favorite episodes in a long time between the carvings this new well feature, 
This was some seriously good stuff to look at and to talk about, and I hope we get to talk about it some more. You know, we complain a lot about what happens on the show. We complain all the time here. That's what you do on shows like this, right? On podcasts like this. But every once in a while, they bring the goods, and they did it this week. And uh, man, this was a great show. I just wanted to mention that. And that's it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, no podcast next week unless, uh, you know, keep your feeds refreshed. Maybe I'll get one towards the end of the week. But if not, we'll do episodes 12 and 13 all in one podcast the following week. Uh, don't forget, you can help keep the show going by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make that one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. <laughs> Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. I had a tar- hard time talking today. I'm still having a hard time talking. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everyone who's done that uh, for leaving the five-star ratings. Uh, I really do appreciate it. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can certainly do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind that if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, just make a note of that for me. Well, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.